Do you ever wish you could try your hand at an industry job without putting your academic career on halt? In this week's episode, you'll hear about Zoe Ayers and about how she managed to do exactly that by choosing to take on industry-backed projects for her master's, her PhD and her postdoc in the chemistry domain. I start to look at CVs now and I'm not just looking to see how many papers people have published. Like, Quite frankly, I, I don't really care. I care more about skills like teamwork and the ability to adapt. Papers matter so much for academia and yet for industry. Unless I'm looking at papers and saying, okay, well, this person clearly can collaborate very well because they're on a paper with, you know, seven people, then, you know, in, in reality, it doesn't count and the weight is not as high. And I think that that's something that graduate students worry about a lot. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. So today I'm talking with Zoe Ayers. Zoe is an analytical scientist by background. She did her undergraduate in forensic science before pursuing analytical chemistry and going on to do her PhD research on the development of electrochemical sensors at the University of Warwick in the UK. She is now an R&D scientist in the water industry, having made the transition from academia to industry just over two years ago. Zoe is also an active mental health advocator, raising awareness around mental health in graduate school and beyond. Welcome to Papa PhD, Zoe. Hello. Thank you ever so much for having me on. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm super happy to have you on the mic today from across the pond, from the UK, to talk about your journey from your PhD to, to today, to your, your career today in, in industry. But to begin with, I would really uh, like you to just talk a little bit about yourself, uh, introduce yourself to, to the audience and set up the stage for our, for our conversation. I guess the best place for me to start is um, actually like prior to going to university in the sense that I did not get the grades that I wanted to go to study chemistry at university. Uh, so I didn't do particularly well. Uh, it was in part because I really kind of messed around a little bit. I didn't, you know, focus in the way that I should have done. Um, and then, so I really ended up looking at courses and I couldn't really qualify for chemistry. And I looked around and I saw forensic science courses and I thought, you know, I've watched uh, CSI on TV. That sounds really cool. Um, I'll go and I'll go study that at university. Um, and I just managed to snatch the grades to go to university to study forensic science, which had a lot of chemistry in it. But I quickly found out that forensic science at university is absolutely nothing like CSI. So what I did find was analytical science in that, in the sense that um, analytical science is you know something where we could be testing some blood samples, for example, and actually look to see, you know, is this person over blood alcohol levels and things like that. And I found that kind of fascinating uh, the fact that we can use science to prove something uh, to a reasonable confidence and actually use the science to do that and that kind of got me interested in analytical science as a whole and when I finished my my undergraduate degree uh, I, I looked around and I saw a master's course that was available in analytical science uh, at the University of Warwick 
and I decided that was the leap that I was going to do and I was going to go and train up in analytical science more generally. Uh, so I, I moved over to Warwick and I started that course. Uh, it's a bit different, I think, in the UK to the US with master's courses. It's quite traditional to do a master's course separately and then go on to do a PhD. So that was kind of a natural track towards a PhD. And for me, I I was doing this course and whilst I was doing this course, there's this brilliant woman, um, Professor Julie McPherson, who I saw teach and she was teaching about electrochemical sensors. I just thought, I want to go work for this woman. Um, so really that that kind of set me on the trajectory of going to work with her and, and, and her research group. And I did my master's research project with her. I got to do um, some great industry-led research. So I worked with AstraZeneca, which is a pharmaceutical company, and we made sensors for, sensors for them. For them. And by the time it got to the end of my master's, I thought, wow, I really love this applied research. And I ended up doing an industrial-sponsored PhD with, with Julie McPherson at the University of Warwick. And from from there, I, I was there for several years. I did my PhD with a bit of strain on top of that, which I think we'll talk about a bit later on. I then did a postdoc at, at the university as well. So I guess in a lot of cases, people get told they have to leave institution. I didn't do that. Um, I stayed there um, for, for about a year. And at that time, I was um, also on an industrially led postdoc. So I was really kind of having industry related experience all the way through. And I thought, you know, kind of looking around at academia, I thought, actually, why am I doing this? Like industry um, is something that I'm really interested in. I should go and actually work for industry. So for me, although I had maybe grand designs to be a professor one day, I decided that, you know, actually, um, industry was going to be for me. And I decided to make that leap. And I was looking around at the time and, and my this job came up for me in the water industry. And I just thought I get to apply these really cool sensors and um, really cool analytical science and go explore new and different techniques for the water industry. Um, so I've now been working there for two years. Um, I get to do a lot of really cool research and I really enjoy it. Hmm. Very interesting. So, so what's interesting to me is... Uh, and, and there's, you know, the, the trajectory is, is pretty clear. But you've mentioned that both your PhD and your postdoc were industry funded or industry backed. How does that work? Uh, how did you no learn of, of this possibility of, of doing these? Because uh, in my circle, it's not something that I've seen a lot. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's really interesting to me, actually. I think um, maybe perhaps more in the UK, there are more industrially led fellowships that are available um so for 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 me um say the phd positions were going and there is there is that option to actually have that industry sponsorship provided that you can show an interest and actually want to drive that forward so and for the most part there are no like embargoes or anything on publication whilst you're doing the industry research so you can actually go about and do your research career as you would usually do but you can actually then work with the industry and get that experience at the same time and uh, both at the phd and at the at the postdoc uh, level does this mean that your funding was all coming from uh, from this uh, collaboration with industry uh, so usually it's uh, it's half government run um, or funding funding body run. So like you, know, for example, one one of them was Royal Society funded, which is uh, 
it was something that is a big funding body in, in the UK. Um, and my my PhD was EPSRC funded, which is an engineering uh, research council. Um, and they funded this in part um, so that I could actually have that industrial sponsorship. And I guess really the application so that, you know, when you're doing your research, it's not so blue sky that it's never going to apply to anything. Uh and that's that's always really appealed to me. Like I've always wanted to be doing something that I, I I can see the end of and can kind of see the use of it. I think that's kind of why I enjoy my my industry position in the way that I do. That I know that there's going to be impact down the road. Okay, and just out of curiosity, how do, does application to these uh, programs uh, function? Does do you did you choose your research your PI and then they they propose this or or is it the other way around? So usually the PIs have the positions and then you choose, you, know, you approach those PIs and say, okay, I would like to come work with you, which was the case for me. And um, how was, just because one of the things that I remember was challenging and, and I, I actually, after my bachelor's, I took some some time, I, I, I worked, I did other things before I then decided to do my PhD and it was a bit daunting to go into the interviewing process uh how you know how was how did it go for you how did you prepare how did you make your case to say i'm the i'm the candidate just thinking think of uh, listeners out there who maybe uh, are a little bit uh yeah uh, fearful of oh am i you know good enough for this position that i really want uh am i the person etc cetera, etc cetera. do you have i don't know if you have some feedback some feedback or some insights on that yeah, I, I I think for me, one of the main things that I kind of had to get over and was really important for me in the application process was appreciating that academics are people too. Um, and that sometimes it can feel kind of scary to email professors and say, hey, I would like to come work for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> like It can be really difficult. It's not... You know, you see these people and they've got these grand careers and they're they're brilliant at what they do. And it can be so difficult to kind of take that leap and say, hey, I don't I haven't got anything to really prove to you other than some grades on a bit of paper that I am who I say I am and that I am good enough. Uh, and so I think the main thing for me would be to just kind of take that leap of faith and actually say, OK, look. I am really interested and I would like to come work with you. And I think that if the, if the professor doesn't get back to you, then maybe you didn't want to work for them in the first place. Yeah. And you need to, because when you visit or when you, when you approach people in this stage of, of interviewing, you, you need to approach a bunch of people. And then for sure, some of them, they could, they could be busy. They could have already found someone. There's many reasons why, why, why it shouldn't happen. So uh, you, probably, you probably sent out uh, CVs to, to, different, to a bunch of different places. Yeah, and, and you, really, you really do have to just keep trying at it. And, and it's dealing, dealing with failure and rejection is something that we have to, we go through a lot in our scientific careers and just in our careers in general. And like, it's really difficult to get used to. And I think it's, it's, it's trying to detach, you know, the fact that there are so many people applying for these positions. It's not necessarily to do with you. Um, I also have some brilliant friends that did a PhD with me that didn't get the grades that they, they were meant to get for their PhD. And they ended up on their research programs without, you know, achieving these excellent grades that perhaps you need. 
Um, but I don't think you need. I mean, those people were brilliant. Like I didn't know until getting to know them that they didn't get the grades that they, you know, on paper people needed to get to get to that point. And I think that's really important as well that if you can really sell your merits um, and find the right PI, then it's still a route that's open to you. Um, I guess I learned that early with university in the sense that really I got into university on the merit of some of the personal statements and what, and things that I wrote to actually get into university. Um, it wasn't just on my grades. Um, and I say, I think if you want something, you, like it's it's not fair to say that it's always going to work out but i think if you keep going uh, eventually you find you'll find that you can do that or you find you'll find an alternative that you were just as happy with yeah no for sure for sure i agree and and it's interesting this aspect of uh, how yes your grades may count to a certain level but often and depending on phd programs etc sometimes the, the weight is much higher on the interview, actually, or yeah. on the letter of intent that you send or something like that. So if you're passionate about something, it'll show and, and people may may very well say, OK, this person, you know, doesn't have the grades, but she needs to be on the program. It can it can very well happen. It also applies when you leave your graduate program and you go and you start looking for industry jobs. I start to look at CVs now and I'm not just looking to see how many papers people have published. Like, quite frankly, I, I don't really care. I care more about skills like teamwork and the ability to adapt. And again, that's something that comes out at interview. Um, and, you know, papers matter so much for academia and yet for industry. Like, unless, unless I'm looking at papers and saying, okay, well, this person clearly can collaborate very well because they're on a paper with, you know, seven people, then you know in in reality it's just it doesn't count and the weight is not as high and i think that that's something that graduate students worry about a lot in terms of publications and i think that it's not necessarily something that you should be so concerned about when moving towards industry mm -hmm. uh, and actually this this uh leads me to a question which is so would you recommend for someone who already knows they want to go into industry to try and find these industry backed uh, PhDs and postdocs do you feel that somehow they 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 kind of they close the gap a little bit for for that job opening that will come after for me I mean I, I obviously was never on something that wasn't industry sponsored so I guess I don't have that perspective particularly but in but in the same sense I got to work on things like patents for example and they are they're absolutely still applicable to my day job going forward and so there are skill sets there that I developed that actually I could go and hit the ground running when I when I moved into my industrial position because I already had that experience. I just want to take a moment before going on with the interview to let you know that you can help me end the show by leaving a star rating and a comment on your podcasting app. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can now leave your rating and review by visiting papaphd.com forward slash podchaser. If you want to go a step further, go to patreon.com slash papaphd now and become a supporter. For the equivalent of a coffee per month, you'll be helping me immensely with the recurring costs of hosting and producing the show. Again, thank you for being a true fan. So we've You've told the arc of your of your story, let's say up to up till today, but uh, I I want to rewind a little bit and go back. So you you already talked about 
doing your PhD. Uh, I imagine, you know, as everyone who does a PhD, there's challenges, there's there's difficulties, there's moments where you think, uh, okay, should I be here? <laughs> you know, imposter syndrome, etc. Then you also you also talked about two transitions, you no know, transition to the postdoc, which is which is one, and then transition to industry. But um, wh where I want to go with this is. In your experience, let's say during your PhD, um, how how you know how was it in terms of challenges that you may have faced, and if you did, uh, did you find where did you find resources to help you deal deal with these uh, these obstacles? Were they did you find them at at the university? Did you have to go find them on your own? I'm just uh, thinking of my experience as a PhD and the experience of a, a lot of, a lot of PhDs I, I cross paths with, there's always a moment where something is really not going your way and you, you think, okay, this is not going to work. Did you go to do anything that, that sounds like this? So um, throughout my PhD, um, particularly like going into my second year, I think my mental health was particularly poor and I'd never really experienced um, depression before and I ended up getting diagnosed with clinical depression at that time and I'd never I'd never really experienced feeling like that and I think in part it was because I'd never really experienced science failing and by that I mean that at like undergraduate and master's level the science experiments were really set up for us to succeed you have a titration or, or a, you know a DNA sample to run and the outcome is already known and I think I really struggled with the research in the sense that it was like this kind of like foray into the unknown and that actually I wasn't on a project that was absolutely necessarily going to succeed and no matter how hard I worked looking around and comparing myself with others I didn't feel like I fit in you know I've, I've learned the phrase imposter syndrome for the first time uh, and In reality, I looked around at the university to try and find um, support for that. And I found that the support was very much uh, related to undergraduates. So there wasn't a lot for, for PhD students in the sense that um, really you know, things like imposter syndrome and you know, dealing with failure, they're things that we just weren't talking about. And I think that was kind of... Um, part of my experience and why I reached that kind of low point that I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you say that that um, whatever resources were there were pretty much geared towards undergraduates. And I think this is a reality in, in a lot of places. Um, but uh, how did you end up dealing with that can you can you share a little bit uh, are you comfortable with sharing a little bit on how you dealt with that uh, and what resources you found that ended up helping you yeah um for me i think first of all it was it was actually acknowledging that the support on campus wasn't really for me and there's no amount of going to like um sessions on how to survive exam stress i wasn't doing exams like it was never going to help and you know i did go and see the therapy dogs And it was lovely for an hour, but it, it wasn't going to get me through in, in the way that I needed. I ended up going to see a therapist on campus. And again, I found it not right for me in the sense that this person didn't really understand what I was going through. And it took me a few rotations to actually figure out speaking to someone properly that understood what I was going through. 
And really the main thing for me was actually starting to open up to my peers. So there's so many people around me that were also going through the exact same thing, but we were silently sat and not talking about it. Uh, and so actually opening up and saying, yeah, I am feeling like this. It start, I started to appreciate how big of scale of a problem that, that really was. Uh, and that you know, we, we were all experiencing similar things. It's highly prevalent, definitely, in, in, in the numbers of, uh, you know, everyone knows now that the numbers, what the numbers are uh, on mental health issues. Uh, but just out of curiosity, did you end up uh, with, with this group of people, I don't know, going, talking at the Institute to set up something for grad students? I'm not trying to defend that the onus of creating these structures should be on the students. They should, shouldn't. People are struggling. They shouldn't have the responsibility. But... You know, if if you if some if you're feeling, or if you know someone who is, and you you see that they're not finding resources, uh, going to talk to the higher ups may be a way to start moving towards the right direction of of uh, of you know institutes and and institutions supporting their graduate student community. What was your experience in that sense? So for me at the time, I wasn't in the right headspace to go and speak to someone about the the stuff that was available to me, like it. And I completely, I completely understand and and do agree with you that unless unless a university or institution is aware of what is lacking, they can't do anything about it. And I think that's really important. And also the fact that a large portion of university is made up of undergraduates. So of course, you're going to gear your mental health provision to those students. I mean, that is your first and foremost. So really, for me, it wasn't until several years after finishing my PhD that the kind of, I turned around and thought, that wasn't a great time. And I'm, I'm, I'm healthy now. I, you know, I'm, I'm mentally well. I've built my resilience. I've also understood myself more. I've also got out of that terrible time where I wasn't okay. And I thought, actually, now I'm ready and now I can go and speak about this. And that's kind of where some of the mental health posters and infographics that I produce has kind of formulated from in the sense that I was like, okay, this is it. Now's the time. And no, I'm no longer a PhD student, but I remember what it's like. And I remember that I needed help and I doubt it's changed. Hmm. I really want to talk about those, uh, but I, I still want to maybe go stay in this this uh, subject a little bit and ask you for people out there uh, who may be struggling. Can you now, you know, looking back, and you can take a step back and look at the the Zoe that was there at that time? Can you maybe uh, uh, for for the listeners out there uh, kind of make a, a small exercise of identifying what wrong patterns of thought you might have had or what negative self-talk you might have been telling yourself that you now know was a mistake, but also that you didn't have the inner resources to see at that time. But maybe by sharing for people who are listening, they can be inspired and they can say, oh, I shouldn't tell this to myself because I'm actually doing something that's really difficult. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think first and foremost, it would be to tell myself that science doesn't always work. Um, and that we also make mistakes a lot of the time, and that's completely fine. And it's easy for me to say now, I've got a lot of experience with making a lot of mistakes. And some of, some of the mistakes I've made in, in my, my scientific career up to this point have actually led to things like you know, that have been really good. And I've you know, produced papers on mistakes. Um, 
I, <laughs> I, I had this terrible moment <laughs> <That's awesome>. where <laughs> I managed to break a piece of instrument, an instrumentation. Um, I managed to, managed to flood a, an X-ray fluorescence machine, and it cost thousands to fix. Um, and even that, like, it was, it was a, it was a terrible point at the time. It was an accident, but you can recover from that sort of thing. It's not. I'm not remembered by like my PI as the as as the the woman that broke the X-ray fluorescence machine. Um, and if you've gone through a similar thing, then you won't be either. Um, the other thing I think is just actually reaching out and helping uh, or like sp- speaking to people. Like reaching out and speaking to people is so important. Uh, and I wish that I could go back and just say to myself, like, it took me about six months to open up to my my colleagues and say, you know, this, I'm not actually doing okay. And I think that was six months that I could have been getting better. And so there's definitely that aspect of it. Yeah, I feel that what happens at these times is you can fall into the trap of saying, like you were saying, you, you were talking about the imposter syndrome. So if you if you have this perception that everyone around you is succeeding what you start, you know you wake up and things don't work and you break something and you say okay i i'm not worth it i am a bad scientist i shouldn't be here and uh, and uh, i agree that first errors can can bring you to to find interesting things that's really cool that you say that because a lot of things uh, in history have been you know have been found by accident <laughs> and i can i can think of some but uh, there's that but there's also every day you have the chance to learn from the error you did yesterday, right? And uh, and also, like you said too, you ended up finding out that people around you that you opened up to, they also were dealing with things. I think those are the the three the three very good take home messages, at least for this first part of the interview. That's almost we're almost at the end of part one. But uh, now going back to what you said in these uh, latest uh, months, years, you have uh, created uh, and and you you probably have developed your graphic design uh, skills uh, doing that too, but a set of um, uh, information that you you made into posters and documents with uh, different types of information for graduate students out there about mental health. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so... Um, actually it was just over a year ago now when I really started, which, um, doesn't feel like that long ago, but it feels like a long time for me. Um, so in the UK, there's one of the, one of the funding bodies, um, here or one of the institutions is the Royal Society of Chemistry. Um, and they were running a Twitter competition and it's for chemists, um, and it's to display your chemistry research. And I'm sat there one day and I'm thinking, I mean, it's a Twitter competition. I could probably enter anything. And, I, you know, I wasn't entering it as part of a competition. I was just entering it because I thought I could. And I, I was like, why don't I just do a poster on mental health, um, you know, during a PhD as part of this whole Twitter competition? Um, and I was like, well, no one, no one can stop me. And it's not really on brief. Um, but, you know, if I can help one or two people, then that would be fine. Um, you know, it will allow me to kind of help people that are in a similar situation to how or how or where I was a couple of years ago um and I I submitted it and like posted it online and I hadn't been very active on Twitter I mean I'd only ever been entering these kind of Twitter competitions like yearly for a couple of years and the the response was was like it was it was you know there were over half a million people had like looked at the poster and I'm like what <laughs> <laughs> um 
and it it went on and like won like a an audience participation prize for this whole thing that was meant to be about chemistry research and I'm just like I remember messaging the organizers being like I'm so sorry this is not I didn't mean to kind of like you know hijack this yeah and uh, they were like no you know it's great and we're pleased that this has had coverage you know it's things that have affected us as well and I I I just realized in that moment that there was so much power over Twitter and the community that there is and also communicating in poster form um, and from that point onwards, I've been like, well, actually, like this is something that really people seem to connect with. Um, it's something that I wish I'd seen when I was in that place. So I'm just going to continue to do it. And it's kind of snowballed from there. Awesome. And uh, can you share where people can find those at this time? Yeah. So um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, and they're at the moment pinned to my my Twitter feed. Uh, I also have a website as well um, that you can go get them, that go download them on, um, which I think should hopefully be the link at the bottom of this podcast. Um, can you share it? Uh, and then I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. The website is um, my name. So it's www.zjayres.com. Perfect. So I, I will definitely share the link in the show notes of, of this uh, of this episode and uh, for the listeners out there do go uh, and check them out they have different subjects it's really interesting how they're set up and um, you'll see that they give you vocabulary to better think about things you might be living through like let's say we talked about uh, imposter syndrome that was one me too when i when when i had, was at a workshop and someone told me oh this is called imposter syndrome i had this kind of <laughs> moment of illumination <laughs> um so definitely uh, go there and and uh, and download the material they're in english for now but there's uh, translations in the works and uh, eventually uh, they'll be there too uh we're we've reached the end of part 1 and uh, we've talked about uh you know, or the whole the the academic path that that Zoe has followed, and we we uh, heard that she is now in industry and successfully and uh, happily working uh, in in her domain. In part two, we're going to talk a little bit about what she's doing in industry, how that life is, how does she feel about uh, uh, about her day to day compared to academia, uh, and and uh, maybe talk a little bit more about tips and, and uh, advice for people who do want to take the leap into industry and uh, and who may be feeling that it's uh, daunting or that their creativity won't won't be put to use or they're you know that they won't be stimulated like they were in academia so that'll be in part two thanks for listening to part one of my interview with zoe Ayers. in part two we dive deeper into the day-to-day of a chemistry phd in industry and we discuss Zoe's experience of putting all her years of training and research to use in this space. If you enjoy the insights shared on the show each week and would like to dig deeper into some of the subjects covered, you can now join the Papa PhD Postgraduate Career Exploration Group on Facebook. There, you will find like-minded listeners, but also a few of the past guests who will be taking part in the conversation. So, to start a conversation, just go to facebook.com forward slash Papa PhD and ask to join. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.